Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the, th of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before the preaching of God's word. God, we are so grateful to be here in your presence, reading your words delivered to godly men to be written down, carried along by the Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray that just as you answered the prayer of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Lord, that you will answer our prayer and help us to faithfully interpret uh, the text that is in front of us this day. And that we might walk more holy, more in the image and person of Christ than we did uh, when we woke up this morning. In your son's name I pray, amen. All right, I, um, I'm really, really excited to get into this today because we are, we're going to be getting into some apocalyptic literature. So uh, there's going to be a lot of groundwork laid. We've already gone to Daniel 7. We've looked at um, a Daniel 7, 1 through 14, and its interpretation there, it will help us. So for those who have been here for that message or maybe have listened to it, you are in a better place to understand what's going on in front of us because there is um, a marriage between these two passages. But either way, even if you weren't here, we'll, we'll lay the groundwork, we'll get up to speed, and we'll make our way through this. And I just want to kind of lay out up front, we're going to be covering a lot of scripture, going a lot of different places. And the reason for that is it is an easy temptation in apocalyptic literature 
to say, ooh, images and symbols, I believe this theology, let's make this image, that symbol fit my theology, oh, this is what that means. And we, and we see this a lot in apocalyptic literature in particular. And so we want to be careful and cautious when we approach it to make sure we are faithful and to let scripture interpret scripture. So we will, we'll be looking through a lot of scripture um, today. As we, go, as, as we go through this, I want to give you an example, just kind of tee you up what it is we're working on. And that is the spiritual realm, the spiritual kingdom. We will be talking about earthly kingdoms, earthly symbols, but we are talking ultimately about the eternal kingdom, this fifth kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And the purpose of all of this is to keep our eye on the fifth kingdom. Scholars will spend their times focused on the interpretation of these symbolisms, uh, whether it's the beasts in later chapters of Daniel, the materials of the statue in Daniel 2, that, that can consume so much focus and attention. What does it mean? What's the alignment? But that defeats the whole purpose. It's the fifth kingdom. So let's get into it. Let's look at this. Let's see what's going on with these four kingdoms so that we can understand what God's doing to them so that he can be glorified in his work in the fifth kingdom. So um, with that in mind, uh, let's, we're going to uh, talk about the divine council. So for those who haven't been here uh, before, we've talked about this quite a bit as a church, but there is a divine council in the spiritual realm. There is a, there is a courtroom, as it's been described, or a council with, with angelic beings, both fallen angelic beings and holy uh, angelic beings, and God the Father sitting on the throne as judge in this divine council. And within the divine council, we see that um, the Father sits primarily as judge. Turn with me to Psalm 82. We're going to look here in a couple of psalms in the 80s and see this. And I know the first time I was told about this divine council and taught, starting to hear a lot of talk about the spiritual realm, it seemed different than what I was used to. I'm used to us talking about Christian life, Christian living, how to be a better person. And there, uh, if you're not tying the spiritual realm with that, you're missing a great part of how to walk as a Christian. And so as we go through this, my hope is that you are seeing the imagery, and rather than trying to conform it, you are, you are using the imagination that God blessed us with to try to see it, visualize, and understand what Scripture's talking about. So starting with Psalm 82, verse 1, we have, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of, God, of the gods, lowercase g, he holds judgment. So this lowercase g, uh, gods, these angelic beings, this divine council, this spiritual realm, God is sitting at the throne. Then flip over just a couple of pages to Psalm 89. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7. Psalm 89, 5 through 7. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh? A God greatly to be feared in, counsel, in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. So we see there is this council, there is an assembly of holy ones. Not the holy one, but there is an assemblage of holy ones. And Yahweh, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is sitting there enthroned as the judge in this council. And he makes judgments. He makes ongoing judgments. But within these, this divine council, we have heavenly beings that are not God as well. We have 
angels, these, some of these holy ones, but we actually have ones that are called the sons of God. Lowercase s, not the son of God, not Jesus, but sons of God. First time I heard this, I started feeling queasy and squirming in my seat. I don't like hearing someone referred to as a son of God other than Jesus. And yet that's how scripture uses this terminology. We're going to look at a few examples. Let's flip back to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Let's look at uh, verses 6 through 7. It says, I said, you are gods, lowercase g, sons of the most high. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Um, and then in verse, let's see here, Job. We're going to flip back to Job. We covered this before um, in the description of some of the divine counsel, but we're going to look at Job chapter 1. This is um, a familiar story, and people focus on the adversary, that is Satan, and he is to be focused on, and we will talk about him. But notice Satan is not alone in approaching this divine counsel. In, in Job 1, uh, 6 through 12, we see, now there was a day when the sons of God, lowercase s, came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan also came among them. Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered to Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. So the focus here, uh, we're going to benefit from the reading of that entire portion there, but the focus here being that Satan did not himself just approach Yahweh. The sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. We have this divine counsel. They are presenting themselves. They're presenting a case or an argument or to be in the presence of Yahweh at this divine counsel. And then Satan presents his um, accusation. And in the next chapter, we see again in the first few verses of Job 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to present himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, though Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down, it, down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? and he still holds fast his integrity. Although you have incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. These examples here we're looking at speak to this access at some level, there is a divine council and courtroom, and there is access for fallen beings who are in opposition to God to approach God. So 
if you grew up in the US and you're used to, I don't know, Veggie Tales or whatever, uh, the children's Bible that's picked, you know, with illustrated, you're used to maybe some of this imagery that is, oh, Satan's down in hell ruling with a pitchfork and there's a bunch of demons and they're looking up, scheming, how do we get you? And we have God up in heaven looking down, looking at his people, hoping they do the right thing, uh, fighting against the schemes of the devil. And the reality is that's not what plays out in scripture. The adversary, Satan, the accuser, has access to come before God and pose accusations at God. And what we see here is that this is Satan's very role. This is what Satan does. He is the accuser. He spends his time here saying, God, no, you think he's faithless because you gave him what he wanted. Curse him. Take all he has. Curse his flesh. What's he going to do? He's going to accuse you. You'll see. He's going he's to curse you. And Satan is accusing Job. He's defaming and libeling Job. And he's also defaming God because God had just said, look at my faithful servant. And the accuser says, no, you're wrong. Let me show you how. And so we'll see Satan again. Um, we looked at this passage last time, but we're going to look at it again. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. And we will see again Satan in this courtroom, his special role as the chief prosecutor in this divine courtroom. His job is to accuse and point the finger. And we see in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is, this not, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What we're seeing here is this scene where, where we see, we're told of Satan accusing, but we actually see in the verses following what he's accusing him of. Yahweh, there is a man with dirty clothes in front of you. Judge him, kill him, punish him. And that is Satan's job. He tempts you. And then after securing his victory in, in bringing sin and hostility to God, he accuses you. And he says, God, be righteous, judge him, kill him. And that is what he's doing here. And what does Yahweh do? He says, rebuke you. And he takes away the iniquity, resembled by the dirty clothes being removed and clean vestments, clean clothes being put on. Next verses go on to talk about a clean turban being put on his head. So we're seeing here this role, this role that these, these different beings are playing. But praise the Lord, God did not, in this divine court, that he is willing to tolerate for a time Satan coming before him, making accusations, saying great things. Praise the Lord, he has given Israel, holy Israel, and us, spiritual Israel, a defender, a defense attorney, Michael, the prince, as our defender. As a defender and leader of the host, he is a defender of Israel. Look with me at um, Daniel chapter 12. Back in Daniel 12.1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been. There was a nation 
till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So we first, we, we end up hearing some specifics here about Michael our prince. Michael our prince. And in extra biblical Jewish literature, there's a lot of writing about Michael. There's a, or there's, um, there's a decent amount of writing to be able to see that there was a context for, a talk, for talking about Michael for the, the ancient Jews. But we even see, actually, if you turn to Jude, let's look at Jude. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9, and we're going to see this entire divine courtroom, a battle taking place. We are going to see in Jude 5 through 9, we're going to see this, this setting up of a defensive attorney of Michael, the, uh, Michael the archangel, and our defender, and we're going to see the opposition of the prosecutor, the wicked prosecutor, that is the adversary, Satan, who is going to um, con- try to contend or be judged. And we see this whole thing set out in verse five, starting in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, Yahweh rebuke you. We see this scene lined out in Jude, so there's this continuity. We see Michael fighting with the adversary, Satan. Okay, so, and, and even when we say Satan, Satan isn't a name. There's no one named Satan. Satan is a title. It means the accuser or the, or the adversary or um, the deceiver. That is what it means. So we are saying actually the Satan, the t- a title of someone. It's not actually a name. So even when saying Satan in reference um, to the adversary, we are, we are saying the adversary, the prosecutor. All right. I promise setting the stage before we actually get into the Daniel passage is worth it. It's, gonna, it's going to make things easier for us. But I want us to see... This, um, this next step, which is when the heavenly realm we see do, interacting with the earthly realm. Okay? So we're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And God, in, as judge, when we, when we think of judge, in particular, if you're here for Sunday school, it, it, it was... It was clearly God's ordained choice for a Sunday school topic for today. It's going to fit perfectly. But if you hear judgment, the word judge, or God is judge, likely you're thinking of the end day judgment, the final judgment, that last judgment. And that's true. God will be judged then. Jesus will judge. But God is also making judgment and has judged along the way. Making judgments. He's already judged Joshua in Zechariah to be clean. God judged Adam and Eve unworthy of being in the garden, but also he has judged that sons of God, these divine beings, and he has made decision 
based on their behavior, and he's also made decisions based on the unfaithfulness of Israel, which we'll see later, to turn over nations and peoples on earth to the demons, to the fallen ones, to the sons of God. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So the imagery I have here is just a big old risk board, right? And this risk board that has boundaries determined and allotted, and each of these boundaries are assigned a ruler according to the sons of God. They are numbered according to the sons of God. So we have these nations with a fallen spiritual being as the ruler of that nation. And we see this played out over and over, the gods they worship. Whether it was Egypt, when, when the magicians, it's not just all made up, completely fabricated that there's any power from anything other than from God. There is power. There is wicked power. And we, we've read many times in this church in, out of Ephesians about how we are contending with a darkness and a spiritual power. But there is also a real power behind a lot of the wickedness of these nations in ancient Israel or in, in the ancient earth in which these divine beings were given an allotment and a boundary. And in verse thir- uh, 9, the very next verse, we see the significance of this is that in verse 9 it says, but Yahweh's portion is his, is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. It's the significance of pulling Abraham and pulling out a separate nation. The sons of God thought they had won and that they have an inheritance, a nation given to them, and it is theirs to rule. And other nations around them, the other sons of God, it's time to start killing other demons so that I can gain their power and their nations. And the significance here is that God, Yahweh, chose for a special nation, a special group of people to come out of this, even though the borders had been fixed. And it was a people without a border and a boundary until God had given them an allotment, a promised land, a border and boundary that they would seek. Okay, so we've set the stage with the divine council. This is what's going on. It, is hard, it can be hard to visualize or it might feel really spiritual or, okay, what does this have to do with me today? But I will tell you this. If you're tracking with me, we can now go through this imagery and I think see what's going on in Daniel 2 and the interpretation of Daniel 2 rather clearly what's going on here. So let's look with me at that. Where we'll go to our, our, our pericope for today, our passage for today, looking at Daniel 2, and we have 31 through 45. On the back of your inserts for the song in your bulletin, you'll notice a little chart I put in there for you. Um, you can go through in your own time if you'd like and go see the symbolisms and the alignments of these four kingdoms and the four, these four earthly kingdoms spread throughout Daniel in various ways. They're described later in Daniel as beasts. That's what we've looked at in Daniel 7. Um, We see um, uh, descriptions of some of them um, in more detail than others. Uh, But what you'll see is that consistently there's these four kingdoms. And and our four kingdoms are Babylon, we have uh, Persia, we then have Greece, and then ultimately Rome as as our four. So I would encourage you, if you want to go back and look at the four kingdoms in greater detail, through these parallel passages um, or through these other symbolism and imagery given to you, um, I I would encourage you to do so. But we're going to focus today on what is going on with the imagery as a whole and what it's pointing to. 
In Daniel 2, 31 through 35, it says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and, exceeding, uh, uh, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and his appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, his chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that is, the, that is the dream. That is why the rest of Daniel 2 up to this point has been contentious between Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans, or, the, or the, um, the counselors, the sorcerers, the magicians. I'm not going to tell you my dream so that you can just tell me what I want to hear. You have to tell me what I dreamed. You have to tell me what's in my head, and you have to interpret it. And this is the dream. So already Daniel is fulfilling right, the initial request to prove that the interpretation would be sure by telling him a dream that he has no reason to know other than God giving him the dream and answering his prayer and, and the other three's prayer earlier in the chapter. And, as, and what we see in this vision is it's a statue. You might immediately think of it as a human. It might be. What we do know is it's bipedal, right? It has two legs. It's on two legs. A kangaroo's bipedal. I mean, it could be an animal. It could be a beast. It could be an angel, a divine being of some sort. We don't know for sure. But what is clear is we see feet, legs, toes. We have hands. We have a chest. We have a head made of gold. So this is what God would have us know about the statue, what it actually looks like, any given thing. Pretty sure it's not a chocolate bunny, but outside of that, there is a clear image of something, some being here. These materials start working their, their ways down. We have gold, silver, and then we start getting into uh, bronze and clay and iron, uh, mixing at the feet. And we have just this weird, this weird image. So let's read. We don't have to do what the Chaldeans did. We don't have to guess at the dream, and we don't have to guess at its interpretation. Let's hear what Daniel has to say, uh, what God has to say through Daniel um, in the next couple of verses, 36 through 38. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, make you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So we have the first part of the interpretation about the head of gold. Daniel says a lot of things about Nebuchadnezzar before finally telling him, you are the head of gold. At first blush, at first read, you're going, wow, Daniel is a smooth talker. He is flattering this guy. He knows he's about to tell him in these future verses, your kingdom's coming to an end by an inferior kingdom. So he's flattering, flattering him, buttering him up, getting him ready for the, for the bad news. And I would say that if, if that's what you think, and there are commentators that think that, I think you are very much missing the point and missing the verses prior to this. And Daniel, we've already preached through this. Daniel, using the words of his hymn earlier when given the dream, he brings upon the words of Job, in addition to a psalm of salvation saying, God is my savior. He is the one who saves me and the one who saves um, the, the pregnant mother. He goes through this whole psalm by, by using these words. But he also quotes 
verse, words that are the only other place used are in Job, when Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall go, right? It is saying before God, if I live and I'm saved or if I die, to God be the glory. I don't think Daniel is so focused in his self-preservation. It would be out of character based on what he's already done. Beyond that, we should hear what's actually being said. It's not just good words. Hear the, hear the imagery being said. This, uh, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, children of man, beasts of the fields, birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. This is creation language. This is the role that Adam was supposed to have. This is the role Israel was then brought out of the Exodus to have. It was to rule and to rule the creation that God created. It was to rule it on earth as an, as an appointed people from God. And so if anything, what this is, is a condemnation of Israel. The authority that should have been Israel's is instead handed over and given to a wicked king who is opposed to the heart of God. If I'm an Israelite, hearing this, and Daniel is writing this to a Jewish audience, if I'm listening to this, I am feeling convicted. You should be feeling convicted because why is it that a wicked king has the authority that should belong to Israel? In Jeremiah, the answer is um, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 22. I will uh, read the first nine verses of Jeremiah 22. We will see God tells Jeremiah exactly why they will go to Babylon, into this exile, and why authority that belongs to God ultimately and temporally or on earth to us was handed over to Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah 22, 1 through 9. Thus says Yahweh, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, hear the word of Yahweh, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David. You and your servants and your people who enter these gates, thus says Yahweh, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares Yahweh, that this house shall become a desolation. For this, thus says Yahweh, concerning the house of the king of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon. You, yet surely shall I make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by the city, and every man will say to his neighbor, why has Yahweh dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of Yahweh and their God, their God, and worshiped other gods and served them. Weep not for him who is dead, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more to see his native land. It is because they forsake God. Rather than focused on the deity, the one true God of Israel, they start to worship these demonic powers and beings that seem to give pleasures of earthly life in the surrounding nations. We see intermarrying. We start to see the hearts of these men get taken away 
from Yahweh into worshiping false deities. And these false deities, this worship, these are the surrounding nations. They're attempting to conquer. They want to conquer through the heart and through each other. Daniel is not buttering up Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, I would even say, I think it's a gutsy thing to say, hey, all these wonderful things about you, yet God gave them to you. And Daniel's done this before. We saw this earlier uh, in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is replacing who has the authority, which is Yahweh at the top, giving an earthly temporary authority to a wicked man. Just as he has given a temporary authority to a wicked sons of God and fallen angels, a wicked temporary authority to the adversary. So we're starting to see these parallels. So Israel is being judged here. It is being judged for for their corruption, for their... um, Uh, for their uh, idolatry and their worship for forsaking Yahweh. And what we we end up seeing here is that these kingdoms, one after another, change hands, right? We have one kingdom conquering another and another and another. And it says there in the next verse, in Daniel um, uh, Daniel 2, in verse uh, 39, uh, after telling Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise from you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So these inferior kingdoms come one after another, in particular the the silver and the bronze. A historian would say that's not true, Uh, would say actually the next kingdoms, as you go from Babylon to Persia to Greece, become greater in geography, in power, in military might, in advancement, That's not what's being spoken of here. So this inferiority that comes after is a moral bankruptcy. It is an additional heaping of heinous accusation and fight against God. So we see one after another additional increase in unholiness in this this kingdom, in this kingdom. And and it, it tracks exactly with weaker and worse materials with each one. The value and the substance that is there is less and less. And then you even see it goes on the statue. We start with the head of gold. We work our way down. There's an increasing building of moral bankruptcy. This inferiority is a trudge in in unholiness. And what I would love is for us to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Just a few pages over. And you're going to see how it ends up peaking after four kingdoms you're going to end up seeing this, it peaks with uh, Satan, with the little horn. So in our divine council, okay, where we have these two, we are talking about the kingdoms right now, we set up a divine council. We need to remember and not lose fact, the lose sight of the fact that the angels or these sons of God, these princes, they are not a coordinated army, right? They are not working in lockstep, signals, codes, all these things. We're going to work together to go fight Yahweh. They are opposed to God, but they would do anything to seek their own glory. Anything. They will devour each other to seek their own glory. Think about yourselves at work. How many of us have experienced at work someone willing to say something poorly about us? Maybe you've caught yourself doing it. They praise themselves and lift up their own glory of what they've done, the work they've accomplished. They belittle the the work and glory of someone else. How much more would demons who seek their own glory 
do whatever it takes to gain more glory and to lower the glory of others. And so we see a lot of demonic infighting, and that is what is happening within these realms, these kingdoms conquering each other with greater and greater defilement. The more wicked and the more unholy the demon, the more they conquer each other until it peaks in Daniel 7. So we have alongside the fourth kingdom, so not in place of the fourth kingdom, but alongside, we see in Daniel 7, uh, verse uh, starting in verse 8. Um, so earlier in Daniel 7, we, end up, we actually have the, the dream talking about there were four beasts. And after, talking about these kingdoms, after the four beasts, it says in verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, which, which, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. We've already preached through this passage. We've looked through this. Um, those who haven't, um, weren't here for that, I would encourage you to go through and look. But this is the adversary. This is Satan. He comes in and he plucks up the first three kingdoms. There, this is not a kumbaya of evil. They are devouring each other. He plucks up the previous three and alongside the fourth kingdom, that is Rome, he speaks great things. He's glorifying himself. And how does this moral um, inferiority continue one after another? It peaks with Rome and the adversary killing the Messiah. So then we have these four kingdoms. We're, we're starting to put it together. They're one after another. It comes eventually to a peak in, in moral inferiority that's, that's building. But then, praise the Lord, we have a rock. We have a rock cut out by no human hands. Let's read Daniel 2 um, in verse... Uh, we'll start in verse 40. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, of partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And here we have this transition from talking about four kingdoms into the eternal kingdom, the fifth kingdom. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that, that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it, was, it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Let's jump back further in, earlier in Daniel. So that was the interpretation. If we even read just verses uh, 34 and 35, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
those of us in church, we're hearing this language, we're hearing these words, and they should be kind of little dopamine spikes. We're, we're getting something familiar. We're hearing language we're used to after a whole bunch of what seems like strangeness in these imagery and clay and mixed with iron and toes and the, this creature um, in this statue, we end up having this description of a stone cut out by no human hand. And what I want to do is I want to make sure you see what all is baked in to this passage and into these things being said. There's a lot of theology that each deserves its own multiple sermon series uh, or multiple sermon series um, on each topic or each imagery because there is so much built into it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them to you. I'm going to read passages to you. And what I encourage you to do is sit and listen and see what is applying here. Which imagery is the correct imagery for this passage? Okay, so we're going to start off with, um, let's see here. I'm going to start off with 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. And um, within this, my hope is that as we get through these passages eventually, you'll realize what's being talked about ultimately is, is all of it. It's, it's going to be all of it. But specifically, we're talking about things like the kingdom inaugurated, the kingdom consummated, judgment inaugurated, judgment consummated, Jesus, victory. This is all being said here. So th- these are things of great weight. But listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, and hear about Christ being the rock. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So we see rock imagery associated with Christ. Now Christ the rock has a refuge and salvation in Psalm 18 uh, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Christ the rock as a cornerstone, Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. All right, let's transition from a stone to temple not uh, to a not being made with human hands. And we have Jesus talking about a temple being raised up in three days, not made with human hands. Mark 14, 58, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. In this case, the accusers of Jesus are quoting uh, or, or are, are saying what Jesus had said. And then in heaven, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, heaven is not made with hands. For we know that if the tent that our is our earthly realm, our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Cleansing of sins being referred to as something done, a cleansing through circumcision not made with hands. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then I'm going to hit briefly on the mountain and the filling of the earth, but just call to memory all of the passages we've read over time and all the times you've read in, in Psalms and Isaiah and all these places about 
all the nations, every tongue and nation, every knee bowing before God, this idea of a mountain filling the earth, the whole earth, right? These boundaries and borders will be no more. Uh, I'll give you Isaiah 1 from Isaiah 11:9, specifically tying in the imagery of the mountain filling the earth. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we have this imagery of a mountain that fills the whole earth. It's this holy mountain, and knowledge of the Lord fills the entire earth. All right, turn with me to Psalm 2. Our brother Mark preached through uh, Psalm 2 uh, not that long ago. And um, it is a beautiful psalm that I think brings into context all of what we're talking about here. All this imagery. Stones, mountains, right? Not cut out by hands. Filling out the entire earth. The enemies, right? Be, or the, the statue being made to be like chaff, blown away. No more pieces. Nothing left. Let's look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We see this potter's clay being, being destroyed by the anointed one, holy hill, his mountain. All this language that is being used to, to describe what, the dream, or what was used in the dream and is also being described back to Nebuchadnezzar is biblical language about Christ and his kingdom, the ultimate kingdom, the fifth kingdom, the one where he sits enthroned above. And I want you to see all, see that all of this, all of this, in some regard, can be imported into this text, right? All these passages. Because on one level, it, it is, I was telling our brother Nick before this, like, it is a Venn diagram of one. You don't have multiple circles that some of this overlaps over here and over there. You cannot have part without all of it. There is no kingdom without Jesus. There is no victory over death without Jesus. There is no kingdom filling the earth without the, the enemies of God not being in the kingdom and being judged. You cannot have victory without judgment. Like, no part of this can you take away and still have it. It's all there. And so that's why it's all being referenced here. Turn with me, um, turn with me to Revelation 12. Just if you thought the imagery and the, the apocalyptic literature wasn't maybe unfamiliar enough, talking about sons of God and all of this. Let's look at Revelation. And I, I would say, if you, if you believe that, that Revelation is too confusing to be understood, I, I would encourage you, all scripture is profitable. And I'm hoping that you can see here what Christ has done, described out in Revelation 12, and that it helps for us sink the divine realm, the, holy, or the heavenly realm, and the earthly realm that's being described in Daniel 2, and what Christ did, 
and how they come together. We're going to read in Revelation 12, 7, starting in verse um, 7 uh, through verse 12. So Revelation 12, starting verse 7. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole earth, of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God, our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. What was just described here is the fulfillment of what is being spoken of in Daniel 2 and being spoken of in Daniel 7. Christ had his victory. Victory over the grave, conquering death. Death could not restrain him. And as he is risen, so too Michael had victory in heavens against the adversary. This is not a thing to come. This is what has been done because of the blood of the Lamb. And Satan is no longer having a seat in the divine council. The sons of God do not have a place in the heavenly realm. They have been thrown to the earth. And in here, we see our application for today. If you, if you have missed it, I, I want to make it really clear for you. If you have lost sight of what Christ has done in the heavenly realm, as well as on the earthly realm, you are, you are reducing and you are missing part of God's glory and what, part of what Christ has done. God has received victory over the grave. And with this victory over the sons of God, people who would call themselves God and try to take our hearts away, our hearts away from God. And what does that mean for our daily lives? Well, how did this passage that just talked about rejoice the victory, right? In verse 12, it said, uh, so Revelation 12, 12, it said, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, that you who, you who dwell in them. We should rejoice. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Just like the person who's seen a movie before and goes to watch it again, the next time you're not really scared for the protagonist. You're not really all that nervous by what's happened. If it's a scary movie, you're not that afraid. The outcome is sure. The victory has been won. We know what is to come, so we should rejoice. But there is still a life that we live, and there is still persecution on this earth. There is still work to be done. And for us, there needs to be woe and understanding of what is being done, because the devil is acting out knowing that his time is short. Further down in Revelation 12, let's just look down at verse 17. You'll see... Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Satan has been testing us and wanting to attack our flesh since Job. 
since before Job, since the beginning, since the garden. And yet we are explicitly told to be warned that Satan is roaming, prowling like a lion, seeking whom he can devour. Satan is on earth because he has no longer has a spot at the table, his, like a caged animal or a cornered animal who knows he is going to die. He is doing whatever he can to tear at the flesh of the kingdom and those who follow the testimony of Jesus. So what must we do as Christians hearing this today? Do not lose sight of the kingdom. We will be attacked. We will be persecuted. We will experience things in this life through perhaps even in our own family of spiritual warfare or of earthly warfare, whatever the trials may be. And yet we cannot lose that heavenly sight. If you lose sight of heaven, you've lost sight of what Christ has done. And we were more likely to stumble in our daily life if we are not constantly keeping our eyes fixed on what is in front of us. Specifically for the Christian, for those who are not Christian, those who are in here, maybe you're regular attenders of church, maybe you regularly read your Bible, but this is a bunch of spiritual mumbo jumbo to you. This is strange things. These are uncomfortable or you just have not bent the knee to Christ yet. God has word for you. God has something to say for you in scripture. He has a lot of words for you. And I want you to hear what God says of the people who claim to know God, right? Pharisees who know as much about the Old Testament or about the Jewish Bible as anyone who claim, look, see, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I'm, I'm, I know these things. Hear what, what God has said, um, uh, what God says about them. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That was Luke 20:17, and then I'm going to read to you all from John chapter 8. In John 8:39 through 47, it says, "They answered him, "Abraham is our father." Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would not be doing the works Abraham did. But you now seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. You would, uh, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was not a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth. Uh, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If you are hearing the word of God, but do not understand them, and I don't mean you can... The imagery is difficult for you to study. I, I understand that. There's a reason lots of study has to go into these things. But if you are not hearing the gospel and the victory of Christ and you do not understand it, it does not change your life in some way, you are an enemy of God. You have rejected the cornerstone. 
and judgment will come. And yet there is a promise and hope of an eternal fifth kingdom that will fill the entire earth. The kingdom is around you. They're seated in the seats next to you. We saints are the kingdom. We are the kingdom. And as we continue to spread the gospel and expand this kingdom, our outposts are shining forth further and further until it will fill the entire earth at the consummation with Christ's return. Brothers and sisters, for, for my brothers and sisters, I encourage you, do not lose sight of the heavenly kingdom. Do not let yourself get caught up in the good things of today and reading good books about just good behavior and trying to walk a Christian life only for that sake. We need to keep our eyes fixed up on the horizon and walk straight. We need to walk straight towards heaven every single day. I will close us with the words of Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. May God bless his word being done through Christ. Focus on the victory that has been attained. Walk towards it. Do not run away from sin. Walk towards Christ, and Christ will help us stray or keep away from sin and keep sin off our path. God, I am grateful for this people and this day, Lord. You have blessed us with an opportunity to read uh, something uh, that can be confusing and challenging, Lord. You've given us words that are unfamiliar to our, our common uh, modern-day ear um, and our understanding of, of the world as we see it or we're told about it, Lord, and yet we know all truth comes from Scripture. You, for a time, tolerated the works of the adversary for your purposes. And yet, Lord, we know that he could not have victory. Christ won, and we thank you for that victory. We thank you for the blood of the Lamb who secured victory and who inaugurated the kingdom that we get to be a part of one day. To you be all glory and honor. Amen.